0: So as we mentioned at the top of our broadcast, certainly one of the themes that we are seeing is what's going on with food and restaurants. They are especially hard hit. Chris Pappas is chairman, president, and CEO of The Chefs Warehouse. It's a distributor of specialty food products. They sell to restaurants, hotels, cruise lines, casinos, food specialty stores, and more. So they are on the front line of uh, certainly seeing the impact of the coronavirus. He joins us right now on the phone from Ridgefield, Connecticut. Chris, nice to have you here. Um, First of all, tell us a little bit about your world. We hope you and your family are safe. Tell us a little bit about your employees, how everyone's doing.
2: Uh, thank you. Um, obviously, this was like you know a nuclear bomb for the whole hospitality industry, and uh, you know uh, it, it, it's obviously not, not easy for all our customers. You know we sell over 35,000 of the top chefs in the country, and uh, most of these restaurants today are closed. So uh, you know we we started meeting. I have an unbelievable staff, and uh, we got together and started thinking. So you know what do we do? We know the retail Uh, uh, Supply chains are really being challenged right now. We're getting thousands of phone calls uh, from people saying, how do I buy from you people? We know you have a 1,000 trucks and warehouses full of food, so we've quickly pivoted. Uh, We've got our food safety teams out there and say, how do we keep our employees safe? Um, How do we get some trucks on the road? How do we get food to people? uh, They're going to want it delivered. And uh, we really quickly transformed ourselves right now into a uh, supplying retailers and going right to the consumer through our websites, whether it be uh, our sites for Allen Brothers, uh, uh, our, our AllenBrothers.com, which cuts the uh, the most uh, the best steaks for the most famous steakhouses around the country, to our ChefWarehouse.com. We've added a new site says shop at home. So. Uh, We keep adding more and more items. Um, It's impossible to put all 35,000 items uh, in one week available. So what we decided was to tone it down, you know, not to offer 200 different types of olive oil, get it down to a really good selection. Um, You know, the the team that's at Chef, because we are pressed with supplying the best chefs in the world, that we're food experts. So uh, I think the consumer could feel comfortable that, Uh, Maybe they never heard of us before, but uh, our reputation over 35 years supplying the best chefs in the world, they can feel comfortable that they're buying from someone who understands food safety, uh, understands quality. And uh, we've quickly put up new sites uh, that they can come online and they can either get it through UPS. Um, People are loading up their uh, freezers right now with steaks and lamb chops and uh, really great, great food that they would normally eat in a steakhouse. And they're also starting to order uh, to their homes um, an array of, uh, I think we have a few hundred items up already, and every day we'll keep adding, and we'll keep adding new cities and neighborhoods that the trucks will be rolling. Uh, they can get online. They can pay with a credit card. And uh, we're trying to do it within, you know, one to three days. We will be at their door with uh, the greatest ingredients right. uh, you can you could find.
1: Well, it's an amazing pivot, as they say. I mean, this is really impressive, and, and we appreciate you giving us all the details there. I do want to ask you, Chris, You know, given that you do work with some of the best-known chefs in the world, we're talking about Thomas Keller, Dan Barber, Nancy Silverton, Daniel Ballou, who will be a guest on this program next week. I should point out Jose Andres, obviously, who's been very uh, vocal about this. As you talk to those folks, you know them well. What are they saying about the future of restaurants, the short-term and mid-term future?
2: Yeah. Well, short-term, I think, you know, everybody is still spinning, uh, very upset with the insurance companies. Mm. You know, this is uh, – we should – you know, business interruption. Every restaurant should get business interruption, If this isn't business interruption, I don't know what is. So um, they're pushing that. I know they're on the phone with the White House. So uh, I spoke to Thomas. I spoke to Danielle the other day. Jean George, and you know they're they're sitting there and they're you know they're pushing, Um, and the sun will come out and. that's why, Chef, you know, we're uh, we're doing everything we can, you know, our 35th anniversary. Didn't plan this would be the way we celebrated it. But, right. you know, uh, we're going to be here for the next 35 years, and they depend on us. Uh, when the sun comes out, you know, they'll start slowly, and as it builds and people feel more comfortable going out, we are social animals. I've been doing this for 35 years, and... Um, I watch people love to go to restaurants, and they love to meet and have family gatherings and bar mitzvahs and christenings and weddings, and you name it. So it it will come back.
0: Chris, I do wonder about when we get on the other side of this, that certainly the restaurant industry, I mean, I saw one number, was it like 15.6 million workers in the U.S. restaurant industry? That is huge. But I do wonder about the safety nets. Um, that are there for those kinds of workers? What changes on the other side? What can realistically change? I mean, the restaurant business, it's a hard one.
2: It's, uh, it's always been a hard business, but, uh, you know, people are resilient. Americans are resilient. Um, I've been through 9-11. I've been through the uh, financial crashes. And um, I'm always amazed how people come back to restaurants, you know, as soon as they're feeling a little better about themselves uh, it's, but what uh, But what
0: financially can change to help some of those workers? I mean, what in the business um, or the financial structure of a, of a restaurant industry or whether it's insurance, like you said, what needs to change so that those workers, I feel like this crisis is showing us really some of the weak spots in our society and certainly within our worker society. So what well, needs you, to change?
2: Sure. Well, you can see, again, most of the restaurants have closed down, the, most of their employees are on unemployment, so they are receiving money, and uh, they're talking about a package where especially small businesses can get up to, I think, three times uh, their, uh, their payroll to, k- to keep their employees uh, employed. So I think the government absolutely has to do something as, lo- as well as with the insurance companies. But uh, when we went through 9-11, it was amazing how generous society is, and that's what we're doing right now in this new business. Uh, you know, we give over seven figures of uh, money away to charities every year. The hospitality industry is so charitable, um, and I think that people are going to rally. Um, I see a lot of restaurants with GoFundMe pages for their employees. Uh, we're going to be donating uh, a portion of our money. We want to double that seven uh, the, the amount that we were able to give last year uh, through uh, new initiatives to raise money to take care of especially all the people on the front end of this that are right. most you know that hurt so the most. I think you're going to have a tremendous rally of generosity and fundraisers, and we've got to put these people back to work, right. and America needs its restaurants.
1: All right. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. We know it's incredibly busy, especially as you launch this entirely new business uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, Chris Pappas is the chairman and CEO of The Chef's Warehouse joining us on the phone from Ridgefield, Connecticut. Carol, uh, so interesting. I mean, this is at the crux of what we've been talking about. This industry, you know, truly one of the most affected by this massive, massive crisis.
0: Yeah, exactly. So uh, good to hear from him and get some input on what uh, is happening and what can be done.
2: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Well, around this time every day, Carol, we've been trying to go to a medical expert to really help keep us honest about where we are, what we should be doing just as human beings to right. try and get through this Uh get smart about the medical aspects, but also the social aspects of this. Uh, No better person to talk about than Dr. Patrice Harris. She's the president of the American Medical Association, excuse me, joining us on the phone from Atlanta. Dr. Harris, great to have you with us.
3: Well, thank you. It's good to be with you.
1: All right, so here we are, Carol and I working from our respective homes. You know, We're working for a company like many that basically is saying, don't come into the office, social distancing, Help us understand what we know so far. I know it hasn't been a super long time. Uh, It's been a couple weeks for a lot of us here in the New York area. What are we learning about whether we are, in fact, going to flatten this curve?
3: So let me start with the end point. Social distancing works, physical distancing works. Certainly we all hear about what's going on in New York. As I sit here in Atlanta, our ICU beds are at Or near full capacity and we see the cases spike in New Orleans and so it is important for everyone to know people may not appreciate that uh, individual actions lead to collective impact and if everyone commits to staying at home of course you know going out for for groceries or, or medical needs medicines but if everyone stays at home when they can they are not only helping themselves but they are helping the medical community so when
0: you hear the president say let's let's talk about creating zones around the country some of them not as hard hit um, and thinking about reopening the
3: economy what do you think what do you say well here's what we are all going to have to commit to we are going to have to commit to being led by the science and the evidence and the data there's no question we all want things to open back up, but that has to be uh, defined and determined by the data. And as I heard Dr. Fauci say, we just don't have the data to make those decisions right now. And, 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 and certainly we want to uh, try to guard against a false choice here, um, public health versus the economy. Uh, you know, it's, it's, we're either going to choose to follow the science and the evidence and save lives or ignore the science and evidence, and lives will be lost.
1: So, Dr. Harris, let me ask you this, because part of what you're saying, which I certainly believe in, and I know Carol does too, and many of our listeners do, is this notion of the most important thing you can do, this proactive thing, is to stay home. And yet, I think a lot of us feel like but are there other things we can be doing, even from the safety uh, and hopeful, hopefully for most people, sort of comfort of their homes, to somehow help out? Are there places we should be supporting financially? Are there things that we can be doing from a distance to help this along?
3: Well, certainly each uh, individual uh, locale will be different. But uh, people are talking about while we are at home, if you can. And I want to say, not everybody will be able to another conversation, not the subject of today. Is that we have to appreciate that there's a diversity of needs out there. Yes. For instance, I'll just give you a quick example and get back on topic, but we talk about hand washing and we know folks who are homeless uh, you know, don't have hot running water. There's a group in Atlanta that filled up some water tanks and is going out to the homeless in Atlanta to do that. So we, we have to appreciate that. But the other uh, things that we can do is, again, check on a neighbor. Uh, I've heard uh, folks talk about buying a gift card from a restaurant. Certainly um, they can get the money now and then can be used later once we um, get through this piece. Uh, make sure you stay connected. Uh, you know, you could if you're healthy and, and uh, no risk factors. And maybe you have a neighbor or a family member who um, is elderly or is in a risk factor, maybe a grocery shop. When you grocery shop for yourself and your family, grocery shop for right. them. Uh, So those are the other things that we can do. That's a good one. I do
0: want to mention a headline crossing the Bloomberg Terminal. A top U.S. regulator is exploring whether to throw a lifeline to mortgage servicers that are stressed by the coronavirus pandemic, uh, thinking about tapping a program meant to address natural disasters. So uh, watching that, we're talking about Ginnie Mae and they're weighing that disaster aid relief for virus-hit mortgage servicers. And Jason, this speaks to that very big story that if people aren't paying mortgages or don't have the ability, you know, there is a trickle-down effect. Yes. Uh, And then it becomes this health crisis becomes more of a financial crisis. We are talking with Dr. Patrice Harris, president of the American Medical Association, on the phone from Atlanta. Dr. Harris, um, your members, you guys represent the physicians uh, across the countries, but you also, you know, are tapped into uh, the drug makers, the healthcare industry in a big way. Are we getting to a point where our system is going to be overstressed and doctors will be making some critical decisions about who gets what equipment because we just don't have enough
3: well certainly that's one of the reasons we want to be proactive about the number of ventilators which is why the american medical association has called on the president to use all levers of government to be proactive and particularly the defense Reduction act to make sure we have the number of ventilators I, i do know that there's been a conversation um around making choices i i can tell you that um at the American Medical Association, we have a code of medical ethics that uh, talks and speaks to what to do when there are scarce resources, and that information is available on our website. But hospitals and health systems are having these conversations ahead of time and developing policies, and that's as it Sh- should be.
0: Should the president, though, impose the Defense Production Act? We just did a story about General Motors, and you know there are companies out there in the private sector who are ready to go and ramp up to make ventilators and so on, and yet there's a lot of confusion because the president hasn't done that. What conversation have you had with him or your, or the AMA to, to do this? And do you think it would be the right thing to do at this point?
3: Yes, we know. It's my understanding that the president has signed the act, but we have uh, communicated in writing um, and uh, in other uh, media uh, forms to please Invoke, activate, whatever the appropriate term is, the Defense Production Act. And also, by the way, we we have asked for a national tracking system. Mm -hmm. And right now, as you are aware, it's sort of ad hoc. Mm -hmm. But it would be, uh, I think, much more uh, productive to, um, you know, have a database or tracking system where we know who has what, who needs what, and then we can prioritize. So we hope that the president activates that and also develops a tracking system.
1: Dr. Harris, just 30 seconds left, but I have to ask you, you're a psychiatrist, what can we do from a mental health perspective for ourselves right now?
3: Well, just a couple of things. First of all, it's an important conversation to have because uh, a poll released by the American Psychiatric Association just the other day revealed that that folks are experiencing anxiety. And so I would encourage everyone to practice self-care, try to get as much sleep as they can. Get some activity, even if it's Mm -hmm. walking around your neighborhood, or putting on your favorite record to dance. And sometimes you have to to, uh, stay informed, but sometimes you have to take a break from the news and social media.
1: All right. Well, that's very, very good advice. We really appreciate your time. Hope you'll come back and join us. Dr. Patrice Harris, president of the American Medical Association, joining us on the phone from Atlanta
2: this is bloomberg business week with carol masser and jason kelly on bloomberg radio
0: our bloomberg business week food editor kate crater writing this week about how the golden age of restaurants may be over because of the coronavirus earlier we talked with the ceo of the chef's warehouse and really got a um 1st uh indication of how stressed this industry is kate joins us now along with bloomberg business week editor joel weber both of them uh, on the phone. Joel, uh, you know, we've been talking with Kate a lot. I mean, the restaurant industry, the hospitality industry, they've really been hit hard.
4: I mean, understatement, I think, really. And, and I think as um, Kate and Richard Vines write in this story, you know, like, keep in mind the context for restaurants. The past few decades have just been just literally this golden age where we've just seen restaurants come into their own. Chefs have become effectively celebrities. Um, And here comes a coronavirus that suddenly means that you're not eating in restaurants. And this is not just a New York or London phenomenon. It's like almost a global one at this point. And even pivots to delivery or takeout have uh, been hamstrung. So it's really this existential moment for restaurants and and about how they're going to actually even make it through this and, Kate, what, do you, what is the future, according to the people that you've talked to, what is the future of restaurants start to look like now?
5: I mean, the future is so uncertain. It's really, as you say, it's just heartbreaking. And it seemed like there was restaurants were always there for you. And it seriously has been the golden age for maybe three decades now, building and building and unstoppable and suddenly stopped in its tracks. But there is definitely a feeling. Certainly restaurants are trying to pivot to take out, some with more success than others. But there's so many safety concerns now, a lot of stuff. Like I got to talk to Jonathan Waxman, who's a beloved master from Barbudo, and he had this fantastic takeout service going for maybe like a week, two weeks, and he shut it down. He was like, it's not safe.
1: And so – Kate, it, you know, it's so interesting because you know, we were talking to Chris Pappas earlier, who I know you've spoken to a lot about what he's doing mm-hmm. with, with Chef's Warehouse, and, and he was talking about some of the you know very famous chefs that he supplies to and sort of how they're both individually and, and collectively dealing with this. I mean, the economics have so radically changed here, and that filters through not just obviously to diners like us, but to the owners, the operators, and the workers. What are the... Good things that are being done at this point, because I know you're seeing a lot of them.
5: I mean, well, there's, there's, you know, there's like little silver linings, and also it must be said, um, the package that was passed today is very good for employees to be seeing what it means for restaurants. Um, but definitely, in terms of like unemployment for people who went from paycheck to being desperate, it's, um, it's very good news for them right now. But sector, um, sector. You know they've turned some of them have turned to restaurants into corner stores and they even have toilet paper that they're um, selling along with bottles of wine and their takeout food. Um, but there is we're actually going to do a story on it next week with um, Chris Pappas from Chef's Warehouse about how the fact that um, the fact that chefs aren't buying caviar and fancy cheeses and pastas and Wagyu beef anymore means that customers, consumers can get them at a discount. So look out for that story next week.
0: You know, Kate, you're talking to, you know, Danny Meyer. <laughs> you're, you're talking to yeah. all the all these big, you know, Dan Barber, the chef and co-owner of Blue Hill. I mean, these these folks, Danny Meyer, you, you say, was forced to lay off 80% of his workforce or 2,000 people. Dan Barber's saying this is the worst hard time. I mean, these are individuals who've been through nine They've been through the 87 Black Friday crash. They've been through the AIDS epidemic. They've been through so many crises that our society has faced and yet this is like no other i mean danny meyer well, danny meyer well danny
5: Meyer's always like always has something to say he really is always glass half full and he is devastated he um he actually for him to lay off one person is hard he had to lay off 80 percent of his mm-hmm. workforce which is sort of systematic of what's going on in the restaurant industry right now and for so, that yeah, Jonathan waxen said he's seen like the financial crash crash the aids crisis so many things, and this is by far the worst
4: he's have ever seen. And of course, right? I mean, like this speaks to just how devastating this particular scenario is where we're just seeing service, the service sector be the one that takes it on the nose here. Usually, you know, recessions, and we have this in the current issue of the magazine in our eco section, Usually, recessions start basically with the manufacturing sector sector, so the fact that this is um, hitting service so hard is going to be really one of the um, memorable things about this particular predicament and When you think about all the the cascading effects here, obviously like you know going out to restaurants is sort of out of the question at the moment, but you think about you know restaurants don't have to pay leases and leases mean commercial real estate. And commercial real estate will be heavily impacted um, by this as much as, frankly, like, you know, residential is going to be there, too, because people are suddenly losing jobs and not able to pay their mortgages. But we haven't seen um, a a commercial real estate catastrophe that looks like this before, and restaurants will be a big reason for that.
5: I think this is going to be really bad. I think this is going to be really bad for cities like New York and San Francisco that have had um, Really high, relatively high rent that restaurant workers can barely afford to pay anyway. And I think now, um, with no restaurant, you know, even even when it comes back, I think um, a lot of a lot of workers are going to say, "Why am I even living here? Like, why don't I just go home to Tulsa, Oklahoma, that, or Mississippi, or whatever?" I think that's
4: right, Kate. I think it's right. I, I mean, I, th- I I'm increasingly thinking that this is going to be this great reset button yeah. for many yeah. many different. Um, ways that we look at our life and asset classes and all kinds of stuff and i i I think you're right like one thing that the last decade has really shown is that when you have a monetary driven um rescue package um if you have capital it was really good to you and this this could be like that breaking point that a lot of people go you know what i'm I, i need to reevaluate everything
1: yeah exactly all right joel weber editor of bloomberg Business suite kate crater our food expert for bloomberg and bloomberg pursuits
2: this is bloomberg business week with carol masser and jason kelly on bloomberg radio
0: it is time for the drive to the close emily Rowland is with us head of capital markets oh forgive me co-chief investment strategist at john hancock investment management on the phone uh from boston emily nice to have you here with us so interesting week, uh, a little bit of a, a breather, it feels like. When you look at the financial markets, the equity markets, the credit markets, do you feel like things are functioning as normal as they can be in this situation?
6: Yeah, thanks for having me. I think certainly, uh, you know, as it relates to fixed income markets, it was it was pretty jarring for investors over the past couple of weeks to see their bonds or what's supposed to be the ballast of their portfolio not really acting as diversifiers the way that they are supposed to. So on those days where we saw the big declines in equity markets and seeing bond yields actually back up, um, you know, was, was a pretty remarkable thing to see. And it was, really had a lot to do with investors just trying to raise cash and a lot of selling pressure in the high-quality bond market. Um, now, of course, we've got, you know, the Fed reacting to this, throwing the alphabet soup at the different types of liquidity measures that they've put into place. And that has restored some order to the fixed income markets. And we do think that bonds can continue to act as that ballast of a portfolio heading forward.
1: So, Emily, uh, give us a report card for the Fed uh, so far. I mean, we've heard a lot of praise for, for Jay Powell and the team. The Fed presidents have been out talking. We had a couple exclusive interviews with them with, uh, I believe, Mr. Kaplan and Mr. Bostic today here on Bloomberg. We played that out earlier. Uh, how do you rate the Fed here?
6: Yeah, I think they're doing an exceptional job. I mean, they're, they've reiterated that they're going to do – whatever it takes here to prevent a you know sinister type of credit crunch or solvency issue. They can't prevent a recession from happening. We are likely in one or entering one right now. Um, but they're almost acting as if this is a wartime type of environment right now and really throwing everything that they can. Um, I've been very busy trying to learn every single acronym here. Um, and again, the Fed is working hard to kind of deliver li- the liquidity that the markets so desperately need.
0: Is the Fed's
6: cure worse than the disease? I think that's, you know, that's the key question. I mean, you think about the fact that we're going to be continuing to grow the amount of debt um, that, that's, you know, the U.S. has been, um, you know, implementing for a long time now. I mean, you look at the debt-to-GDP ratio for the U.S., we're right over 100 percent right now. Certainly that's going to grow, you know, probably not to the levels that we've seen in places like Japan Um, But, you know, that's going to be an issue that we need to contend with down the road. Right now, I think there's much more pressing matters. And again, that's really about providing liquidity and the Fed doing whatever it takes to be there for the markets.
1: And so, Emily, how much do you We I feel like we've heard a a fair amount. A fair bit today, especially as stocks uh, across all the major indices have traded off, about, you know, kind of a double dip or certainly this sort of roller coaster ride uh, that we're in for. How do you plan for something like that? How do you yeah. sort of position yourself correctly for that potential scenario?
6: Listen, trying to call the bottom in markets is a futile effort. And I commend people that are trying to be precise in doing it, but it's really challenging. So, our view is that you need to dollar-cost average into this market so you can have the ability to participate, but also have some protection there. We may have further to go here in forming a durable bottom. The low point in markets usually comes when the economic data bottoms. We're about to get some really ugly economic data. Um, We probably need to see the number of cases in the U.S. peak. We're Mm. still at least a few weeks away from that. And then sentiment. I mean sentiment is not, you know, fully washed out here. I'm hearing from a lot of advisors that I talk to every day asking me, where can I put money to work? How do I, you know, should I go into cyclicality? How do I play this? I would look to see people become completely pessimistic before I would say, hey, look, we've seen capitulation this is a durable bottom. I'm open to it. I hope we get there soon. But we might have a little bit more pain here
0: as we try
6: to form that bottom.
0: I want to go back, though. Do you think the U.S. is headed to being Japan? You know, I think
6: yeah, you you can talk about that. And yes, you know, Japan, we've got this low growth, low inflation environment. But, the, as, you know, if you think about it, Japan actually hasn't really done that poorly. Um, you look at, you know their GDP. Yes, it's one and a half percent a year. Is that great? No, they've had a great employment market. Uh, they've had a strong participation rate there. And all the predictions of this kind of fiscal catastrophe that everybody's talked about with Japan really haven't come to fruition. So is it great that we're increasing the deficit? No. Is it Would it
0: be a disaster to be Japan? Maybe not. But I do wonder about the Fed getting into other areas of buying. I mean, typically, they can't do any buying unless it's, you know, securities that have a a government guarantee. And yet, we understand that the Fed is is moving way beyond that. Um, And I do wonder about, you know, what kind of danger we get into. And I do wonder, ultimately, what's the responsibility, especially those bigger corporations, to be ready to have some kind of safety net?
6: Yeah, I mean, the Fed has definitely done some extraordinary things. I never thought I would see the day where they were buying corporate bonds and even corporate bond ETFs like LQD. This is pretty remarkable. But back to Japan, we still haven't gone as far as Japan. I mean, they've been buying equity ETFs for a decade now. Um, So there's still some um, unusual tools that the Fed hasn't even come close to using here. Uh, But again, I think they're, they're doing whatever it takes for now. There's still things kind of in that, in that bag of tools that the Fed could bring out. But for now, it looks like they've done a really nice job restoring order to the markets.
0: But bottom line, we don't want to become Japan. This is not the model no, that don't. everybody... Okay.
6: No, we don't. Um, but it hasn't been a, the disaster that I think it's, uh, it's made out to be. And in fact, a low-growth, low-inflation environment, it does punish savers But it's actually been a good environment for both stocks and bonds, if you think about it, over the last number of years until very recently.
1: All right. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. Emily Rowland is Co-Chief Investment Strategist for John Hancock Investment Management, joining us on the phone from Boston. We hope you have a safe and healthy and hopefully restful weekend. I think we can all use uh, a couple days to kind of catch our breath, uh, Carol, as we look around and uh, get through this week, which really was uh, something. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.